Today's podcast is brought to you by Howie's new book, Paperboy. To order today, go to HowieCarshow.com and click on store. Live from the Aviva Trattoria studio, it's the Grace Curley Show. we got to bring in a new voice, a young voice, a rising voice, Grace Curley. You can read Grace's work in the Boston Herald and the Spectator. Especially, Grace, Grace, stand up. Here's the millennial with the mic, Grace Curley. Welcome back, everyone, to the Grace Curley Show. The main Secretary of State's decision to boot Trump off the ballot, while we know it's not likely to stand, it's still the biggest story of the day, and for good reason. And I was thinking about this because when we were talking about the Colorado Supreme Court and their decision, we we talked about how they decided to have a self-stay. And this is similar to what the Secretary of State in Maine is doing. And I remember this little passage from the conservative treehouse, and it said that they put this self-stay into their 4-3 ruling. It's a politically correct way of giving the optics of telling their tribe, hey, we're with you, without the ramifications of the political backlash. In other words, psychological lawfare stuff intended for media consumption. And as you can tell by this show, by every show, this kind of psychological lawfare stuff works. The reason I bring this up is because my next guest, who we all love, Ben Weingarten, was on Twitter after this story came out, this decision came out of Maine. And Ben, you tweeted, what's the deterrent to progressive lawfare at this point? I really thought about this question when you put it out there. And what I would love for you to explain to the audience is what used to be the deterrent? Like, why didn't people used to do these things and what's changed? Well, thanks for having me, Grace. And it's a it's a deep and profound question. And the best that that I can say is that we were a different country and a country that would never have tolerated the idea of twisting and torturing and contorting laws to criminalize otherwise tolerated, acceptable conduct and individuals and use the law as a weapon rather than as a tool to mete out justice and ensure that you have an orderly civil society. And I think, you know, what has changed to some extent is that the left has pushed and pushed and stretched the bounds of what constitutes tolerated and accessible behavior. We can look at this in terms of the attacks on the Supreme Court, and it goes to forking and then the high-tech lynching of Clarence Thomas all the way up to the assault on Justice Kavanaugh, and then the Dobbs leak, and then the attempted assassination of Kavanaugh. And you could probably find parallels in other areas as well. But essentially, the norms, so-called, have totally been eviscerated. And in part, it's because of a change in our culture, which tolerates and accepts and is desensitized to these brazen assaults on our institutions in the name of, quote-unquote, defending democracy. And in part, it's because there has not been an equal and opposite reaction. The more and more the left and really the uniparty stretches the bounds of what is acceptable in terms of political competition. And so to the point of my tweet, there is no deterrence at this point to increasingly reckless lawfare and really dismissing of the laws whatsoever. I mean, we live at a time where it's accepted policy of the White House to have an invasion of our southern border, where there is zero deterrence 
for attacks day after day on American troops stationed at our assets stationed in the Middle East. So without any sort of equal and opposite reaction, let alone a disproportionate response, the behavior is only going to get more and more dangerous and reckless. And I fear that 2024 is going to be among the most turbulent years in the history of the republic, quite frankly, because there is no deterrent. And furthermore, Ben, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'll let you decide if if you'd agree with this, but I would say not only is there not deterrence here, but there's incentives for this kind of lawfare. There's incentives. People people become stars after doing these things. They get book deals. They, you know, they they get a higher political office. So I, I would argue that not only have things changed in the fact that people aren't going to do these things because the country wouldn't accept it, but now a lot of people in this country celebrate it. I think you're, you're absolutely right. The incentive structure is a perverse one where if you're a hashtag resistance hero, you know, and, and I'm thinking here of people during the Trump administration who went out and subverted a duly elected president and sabotaged him while they were supposed to be serving him and so-called whistleblowers and Trump impeachment one and beyond, but all the way now, obviously, to these out-of-control prosecutors Like you said, the incentive set is such that it incentivizes behaviors that ought to be not only not tolerated, but punished to the fullest extent. And so you said people make careers out of this. If they go and they oppose anyone who is non-progressive, essentially, however asinine the attacks, worst case for them, they get booted out of office and they get a cushy job as a commentator on a network and they're fed at think tanks and they get really expensive paid speaking engagements all across the country. So you're right. The party rewards those who engage in the most rampant, brazen lawlessness. Whereas on the other side, if you are a victim, you don't then get a perch at a Fox News necessarily or anywhere else. There's not necessarily think tanks that are going to hold you up. In fact, people are going to be afraid to back you because they're going to be afraid that the government's going to come after them if they show any sort of allyship towards someone who is a victim of the regime. So it's a very fraught and disturbing and I think dangerous time for the country. Yeah, really well said. I'm speaking with Ben Weingarten. He's one of my favorite guests. He's from Real Clear Politics. He writes for The Federalist. He writes for The New York Post. He has so many great pieces out there, and you can follow him on Twitter at BH Weingarten. I, I highly recommend it. Ben, and now I don't know if I'm getting too far into it here, but you were just talking about the how, how Americans are desensitized to so much of this, to what's happening in our culture right now. And I would also argue that there's probably an element of these decisions and this lawfare that is dependent on or or maybe hoping that people will not understand it. And the reason I say that is because whenever things come up about, you know, appellate courts or the Supreme Court or things like that, I'm not a great student. I have a hard time. I trip on my words. I have a hard time understanding. Well, it's going to go to the district court. It's going to go to the Supreme Court. Oh, this person brought it down here, and and this she used this evidence for this. It intimidates me. And then so sometimes I don't even want to get into it because I'm afraid I'm going to sound dumb. And this kind of makes me think of COVID, where they were banking on this idea that people are going to be so confused by all the medical terms or by all the rules or by all the things we're saying that maybe they'll just check out. Maybe they won't look into it. And I think that there's an elitism there that they're just hoping people will feel too dumb or too small to care. I think you're right. That's definitely an aspect of it, that you try to make it esoteric so that it gives the appearance that this is 
complex and incredibly serious, and it makes it hard for the layman to understand it. And I'm not a lawyer, but I read a lot of legal documents. And the reality is when you get down to the nitty-gritty of many of these cases and the charges that are being lodged and the attempt to weaponize the justice system, this is about laundering political warfare through a legal process to legitimize it. It creates the appearance if there are lawyers with exceptional pedigrees and high credentials from the best law schools in the country who served in senior counsel positions in the Justice Department or advising administrations or members of Congress, that somehow that deems it a legitimate process and that these aren't just actually very smart and shrewd political warfare actors who are trying to exploit the courts, use like-minded juries, and use, frankly, hyper-political judges which Americans, I think, would be aghast at if they were aware of that alone, because we think of the legal system as it's supposed to be above politics, and the justice are supposed to weigh things on the merits and put their own political beliefs at the door. But in reality, like so many other aspects of society, the legal apparatus has been in large part corrupted. And the fact that we have to rely on the Supreme Court, which is no sure thing, by the way, in many cases, but that we have to rely on the Supreme Court as the only backstop whatsoever to the laundering of political warfare through the legal apparatus prior to the Supreme Court shows you how fraught the situation is. And my whole kind of theory of the lawfare apparatus as the means to win politically for Democrats and the left is that they believe that if they put enough pressure on the Supreme Court, if and when many of these issues arise to the Supreme Court, and we already see them going there, there's going to be such pressure on the judges that one or several justices may well fold or punt on a pivotal question. If not, and the court does stand stalwart through the assaults that it's going to face, I believe, in the coming year, then I think we're going to see a constitutional crisis and potentially efforts to nullify Supreme Court decisions. And that, to me, is the ultimate point of the assaults on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court as an institution and against the justices themselves. It's to create a scenario where there's so much pressure, the court either caves or states say, we are going to just ignore what the Supreme Court says, and let's see if the court calls our bluff and what the response is. And I think we could be at a nullification crisis, which would be a constitutional crisis in 2024 if the court stands strong. A republic, if you can keep it, it's starting to sound like maybe we won't be able to keep it if things uh, keep going in this direction. Uh, Ben Weingarten, I have another question for you. And this is off topic here. We're switching gears. But I loved your piece in The New York Post about Obama and Harvard President Claudine Gay and why he's trying to save her. There was reports that he stepped in, that he was, you know, encouraging people at Harvard to keep her on. And what I love about this piece is I think to myself, oh, yeah, so Ben's going to get into how uh, Obama was a one-time campus radical himself. You do get into that. You get into all this. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's why I thought he would step in to save her. But then you take it to a different level and you say, no, 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 no. Obama's trying to save Claudine Gay because he's trying to protect the DEI regime itself. It's actually a lot bigger than Claudine Gay. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think it's kind of an all of the above in this case. The things that we might assume about Barack Obama's affinity to Claudine Gay, of course, matter to some extent. But it's it's important to level set here and step back to the 30,000 feet level. And that is, this is the leader of the Democratic Party in everything but name, 
in in reporting showing that he is essentially the shadow president behind Joe Biden. All of his senior officials, cabinet members, basically have been brought back in the Joe Biden administration. So this is the leader of the party. And he is putting his money behind or his voice behind, in this case, the leader of the most prestigious university in the country, despite the fact that she's a serial plagiarist, despite the fact that she took an indefensible pro-Hamas protest, a rioter, essentially, position and said, you know, uh, microaggressions are hanging offenses, or if you misgender someone, you're going to be thrown off campus, but you can call for genocide of the Jews, provided you don't actually act out upon it. And so why does Barack Obama use his massive political capital to back Claudine Gay? It's because the DEI regime itself is under assault, and this is the personification of that regime at the most important arguably academic institution in the country in Claudine Gay, who herself has imposed something like a DEI administrative state, injecting equity and anti-racism into every aspect of Harvard, which is a parallel, by the way, to what the Joe Biden administration, which is really a reprisal of the Obama administration, has done with the federal government. So why would he take a stand here? Because that regime is under assault in terms of the anti-woke backlash, in terms of the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling, and because it's on the defensive, I think Barack Obama feels, I need to step up and stand with Claudine Gay here, or our mechanism for engendering ideological conformity, for dominating institutions, for shielding our intersectional alliances, it all falls by the wayside. If DEI falls, it poses a massive blow to the Democrat Party. And so that's why Barack Obama felt, in my view, that he needed to stand in and back Claudine Gay whose tenure is indefensible based upon her background. I mean, she violates every principle of the school, uh, of, ac- of academics itself. Why else would he stand behind her? Because it's usually important in the broader war of ideas and in a broader war for the progressives to dominate the Democratic Party and to dominate America. Yeah. And, you know, ESG was threatened when Bud Light had the backlash because a lot of companies were going, what what good is ESG and all these points we're getting if we're losing all this money? And I think Harvard's probably thinking the same thing. What good is DEI doing us if we're losing all of these all of these donors and all of this public support? Ben Weingarten, we thank you so much for coming on the show. Tell people where they can find you and where can, they can read all your excellent work. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten and all my work via my Substack at weingarten.substack.com. Happy New Year, Grace, and thanks so much for having me. Happy New Year, Ben. We appreciate it. We'll be right back. We'll take your calls on this if you have any comments about anything Ben had to say. I know we, we covered a lot there, so feel free to weigh in. We'll be right back. Follow Grace on Twitter at G underscore Curly. This is The Grace Curley Show. Welcome back, everyone, to The Grace Curley Show. Now all these cuts are going viral of Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows talking about how, you know, it's so important that everyone gets to vote and we need to protect democracy. And if you're trying to obstruct people from voting then, you know, that's a real danger to our democracy. And so what does she do? What does she end up doing? She ends up 
taking Trump off the ballot in Maine. And I have a feeling that we're going to be hearing from a lot of Maine callers. We've got the rest of the show open for you. It's 844-500-4242. So if you're from Maine or even if you just are sick of the BS, you can feel free to call in with us today. I also want to get into the fact that she thinks January 6th and the January 6th report, which I didn't even, I forgot about that report. That's how seriously most people took it. It was a kangaroo court and it was full of partisan baloney talking about Donald Trump. They hired a producer from ABC. They enlisted the ABC News former president, to try to spice it up a little bit, to make it TV ready. It was performative. It was theater. And to use that as a reason to kick the former president off the ballot and to deprive an entire state of people from voting for him, I know it's not going to stand up. I know that in a lot of ways this is already moot, that she basically self-stayed the decision because she knows it's not going to hold up. But in principle, it is an abhorrent thing to do. Don, you're up next on The Grace Curley Show. Go ahead, Don. Grace, good afternoon. Um, August 20th, 2021, Rorty said a story. The FBI report concluded that there was no insurrection. Uh, the Business Insider has FBI found no evidence that Trump was directly involved in organized capital violence. Little evidence of an organized plot. 95% of the one-off cases. There's a whole story about the FBI concluded it was just a riot. Even the Proud Boys... They concluded they broke into it, but they had no idea what they wanted to do once they got in. So it's already been investigated. Two years ago, there's no insurrection. Yeah, but what was the thing? Remember during the Russia hoax, Don, um, where Mueller, there was no Russian collusion, but Mueller said he couldn't exonerate. You know, he couldn't prove that... Trump was innocent and people were going, well, that's not usually how the justice system works. You're not supposed to prove it's innocent until proven guilty. You got to prove the guilt. You don't prove the innocent. But this is how everything's flipped on its head, Don, is that it doesn't matter. And to your point, I mean, we've gone into this argument a million times about the insurrection. Do you show up to an insurrection with no weapons? Um there was really no plan here. As one of my callers said last week, it was a bunch of knuckleheads who started a riot but let's also go back to the fact that Trump went on Twitter and also told people to march peaceably in protest. I don't know if insurrection and peaceably go together. I don't know if that really lends to this idea that he was fomenting an insurrection. But yeah, we can't exonerate it. You know, we can't exonerate him. We can't prove that it didn't happen. And hey, if Shanna Bellows thinks that there was an insurrection, I guess, I guess somebody died and made her king. We'll be right back. Live from the Aviva Trattoria studio. Welcome back to The Grace Curley Show. We're going to continue to talk about what's happening in Maine, this decision by the Maine Secretary of State. But I just wanted to mention here, because we brought this up with Ben Weingarten, the idea that, because there's a piece today in the New York Post about Claudine Gay, and now an ex-law professor 
is slamming gay. A Winkfield Twyman Jr., an ex-professor at the California Western School of Law in San Diego, ripped gay in a Newsweek op-ed published Wednesday, insisting the recent attacks on her credibility are well-deserved and not, as some have argued, racial in nature. He pointed specifically to the intense backlash gay has faced in recent weeks after she failed to condemn calls for the genocide of Jews. Skipping to the next part here, um, where he said, And yet many are coming to her defense. Having finally got their wish of a black president of Harvard, Harvard seems unwilling to let her go, adding that the racial wagons have been circled around gay ever since. This is not only misguided, but deeply ironic. Did you know that Claudine Gay, during her Harvard career, has repeatedly targeted and disrupted the careers of prominent black male professors? Twyman claimed Gay axed Ronald S. Sullivan Jr. as dean of Harvard's Winthrop House in 2019 after he joined Harvey Weinstein's legal team. He also claimed Gay coordinated a witch hunt against Professor Roland Fryer Jr. after his research into the killings of unarmed black men in Houston, Texas, found no racial disparities. This is Twyman, he wrote, he made the mistake of undercutting the racial narrative that the left has adopted. And as a result, Gay did her best to remove all of his academic privileges, coordinating a witch hunt against him. Fryer survived Gay's crusade of discharge, but Fryer's lab was shut down and his reputation tarnished. So more and more keeps coming out about Claudine Gay. And the reason I bring this up is because what I loved about Ben's piece was that he remarks on how Obama is trying to save her and he brings it back to DEI and he says Obama's not just trying to save Claudine Gay for Claudine Gay's sake for the fact that they both you know are anti-Israel and radicals but he's trying to save her because she represents uh, the DEI regime she if she falls this whole DEI uh, this whole DEI system could fall by the wayside and he's a big proponent of that he, he's a big supporter of it And this made me think, I see real parallels here with the ESG system. And we've talked about ESG before, but just in case anyone's not aware, and I'm just going to read you the definition um, that comes up from techtarget.com. It says, environmental, social, and governance is a framework used to assess an organization's business practices and performance on various sustainability and ethical issues. It also provides a way to measure business risks and opportunities in those areas. Let me translate that if you were very very woke you were rewarded for it you know you were considered a good company to invest with you got all these magical unicorn points for being extra eco-friendly or extra diverse and what ended up happening with Bud Light was very interesting because you started to realize that ESG was only valuable to companies if people bought into what it was all about. And I'll give you the example of Dylan Mulvaney. You can get these, you know, you you can do really well on the ESG front by hiring a Dylan Mulvaney to be the face of your marketing. But if all of a sudden everyone stops buying your product, then the ESG protection or the ESG, you know, the mystique of being ESG friendly or however you want to phrase it, doesn't matter anymore because one outweighs the other not selling any beer is not worth it just so your company can meet certain esg requirements all of a sudden the the scale here it's not worth the cost you're paying 
people are willing to partake in DEI and ESG to be part of it if it's financially benefiting them, if they're getting rewarded for it, if they're getting certain breaks for it, certain incentives. In the same way that people are willing to write checks to these schools for DEI if they like what what's happening at these schools. But the second they start going, wait a second, all, all this DEI is giving us a president who's OK with calling for the genocide of Jews. I don't think I like the DEI program anymore. I don't think I'm on board with this ideology, with this agenda. And it really puts it at risk in, in a very quick way. And that's why people called the testimony, the congressional hearing between Elise Stefanik, the congresswoman from New York, and all of these presidents from these universities, that's why people called it the Bud Light moment. Because it was a reckoning. It was it was a way for the American public to see the results of so much of this woke ideology. There you have it. This is this is what you get with the woke agenda. And it was a Bud Light moment, and they're still reeling from it. And as we just read from the New York Post, more to come, more to come for Claudine Gay. The hits just keep on coming. 844-500-4242. Before we go to the calls here and talk about this decision out of Maine, I wanted to do the poll question, which is brought to you by J.J. Manning Auctioneers, whether residential, commercial, or land. J.J. Manning can get your property sold now. To learn more, contact Charlie Gale at 800-521-0111, or you can go to jjmanning.com. Jared, what is the poll question, and what are the results thus far? Today's poll question, which you can vote in at gracecurlyshow.com, is how will the main decision play with independence in 2024? Will it push them toward MAGA, push them toward Biden, or it won't change their decision? So this is from the NIH, okay? It's called reactance. Reactance is an unpleasant motivational arousal that emerges when people experience a threat to or loss of their free behaviors. It serves as a motivator to restore one's freedom. I think there's going to be reactance here from the American people who are going to look at this and say, why can't I decide who I get to vote for or who I don't get to vote for? Why does it have to be decided for me by this woman, Shenna Bellows, the main secretary of state, or by the Supreme Court in Colorado? Why can't I make that decision? And then people will dig into it a little further and go, what is so bad about this Donald Trump guy? Why are they so scared? He was already here for four years and none of this stuff they're talking about happened when he was president for four years. And then they might say, they're so afraid of Donald Trump. But they think their guy's so good. But what has their guy gotten me? Their guy's gotten me higher bills, uh, an open border, more crime, more wars breaking out. I think this is going to push people who have not been paying attention into the MAGA tent, which, by the way, Jared, it's a red, blue and white tent. It's a beautiful tent. They play YMCA round the clock and they serve meatloaf. I think a lot of people are going to be headed towards that tent. 76% of the audience agrees with you. They think that it will be pushing them towards MAGA. 21% think it won't change their decision. And 3% think it will push them toward Biden. Okay, let's go to the callers here. David, you are next up on the Grace Curley Show. Go ahead, David. Grace, uh, what that that woman's doing in Maine is based upon the January 6th attack. And I heard Tucker Carlson interview the commander, the police chief's name is Stephen Sund. He was in charge of the Capitol. He was denied uh, access to National Guard troops in advance of, of the attack. Then after he put the request in, 
They didn't respond to him for 71 minutes, and then the troops didn't show up for three hours. This whole thing stinks, Chris. There needs to be a massive, full-scale investigation on this. The information that the commander, the commander, the police chief, Stephen Lund, who was in charge of the Capitol, that he gave to Tucker that day, there are question marks and red flags all over that. And not only that, with the facial recognition technology today, we know exactly every single cop that was escorting and waving the people into the Capitol. Why were they doing that? They all have badges and IDs. Well, we know exactly who they are. There was one cop, about five foot four, waving people into the Capitol. Well, I want to comment, David, on something you just said about an investigation being needed, because what's unfortunate, it's not surprising, um, but it's unfortunate, is that when this January 6th committee was convened, when when it uh, all started, way back when, Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House. Talk about glory days. And she actually, and people forget this, she rejected the GOP's picks to be on that committee. She rejected, I think it was Jim Jordan and, and it was Banks. It was Jordan and Banks. And she said, no. She said, you can have, we will have Republicans, but we're not going to have Jordan and Banks. And really what she was trying to say is, we will have Republicans, but we want big losers. We want Republicans like Mitt Romney. And, and I know Mitt Romney's a senator, so that didn't apply. So where did she go? She's like, we need Congress people who are like Mitt Romney. Let's go with Liz Cheney. Like, we'll have Republicans, but it's got to be rhinos. It's got to be big losers who like losing and will be on board with losing, losing, losing. That's the only time Democrats are ever going to like you, by the way. If you're a Republican and you get that strange new respect and they like you, it's because you're a loser. That's why they like Mitt Romney, because he lost. That's why they hate Donald Trump, because he won. And they don't like that. They don't like Republicans who win. So the reason I bring this up is that right there, Democrats lost the ability to lecture us about January 6th. Or to lecture us about their version of January 6th. Because there was only one side. If she had just... And I, and I really think that Pelosi... And I know she would never admit it because she, you know, she's the smartest woman in the room. And <laughs> But she messed up with that decision. Because the second she rejected the GOP picks and said, Well, you can have Liz Cheney and you can have Adam Kinzinger. And all Republicans are going, uh, wait a second. I thought you said we could have Republicans on the, on the committee. You just said Liz Cheney, that's our choice? Uh, With Republicans like these, who needs Democrats? But right when she did that, she solidified so much of what the Republicans were afraid of. She confirmed our fears, which is this is not going to be on the level. This is not going to get to the truth. This is going to be performative. This is going to be a one-sided kangaroo court. And, of course, that's exactly what it ended up being. But it was actually kind of nice for Republicans because when people call in and they say, well, did you watch the January 6th? I could say, no, I didn't watch the January 6th. Well, why not? Well, why aren't you watching it? Because there was not fair representation. My, my party, the, the conservative party, was not represented there. Well, there was Liz Cheney. I rest my case. Well, you got to have Liz Cheney. N- no, thanks. I don't consider that representation. And by the way, pretty, you want to talk unprecedented, Jared? That was an unprecedented move from Nancy Pelosi. It was a dangerous move, too, because as Kevin McCarthy pointed out, in a very Mitch McConnell-esque to Harry Reid fashion, if you do this and you start 
deciding who can show up on which, which committees. We'll do it, too. We will do it, too. We'll remove Swalwell. We'll, we'll remove Schiff. We'll play this game. And Republicans did end up doing it. But it was a dangerous road to go. But it was the road of get Trump. So everything is on the table when you're trying to get orange man bad. Orange man off the ballot bad. They would do anything to do that. And so that last caller is dead on about the investigation. And at one point on this show, I did a poll and I said, which, which thing should be investigated the most? And I listed a bunch of things. I, I can't even remember all of them now. But one of them was January 6th. And I chose that. I said, I think it should be January 6th. And a lot of the callers were surprised because I don't talk about January 6th all that often. We started that week. So we talked about it a lot. Baptism by fire. That was our first week on the radio for this show. But I do think there needs to be an investigation and it needs to involve Democrats and it needs to involve Republicans and it needs to involve independents. And we need to know what happened because now it's being weaponized to keep someone off the ballot. And we still don't feel like we ever got the full story. That's a problem. That is a problem. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. If you're going to keep somebody off the ballot for an insurrection, you better tell us the full story about said insurrection. And until then, no, I'm, I'm not going to sit back and pretend I think it's on the level. It couldn't be further from on the level at this point. 844-500-4242. We'll be right back. Stay on the line. We'll take all your calls when we return. I love the Gen 40 heater, Jared, because this is the perfect kind of weather for the Gen 40 heater. Because today it's a little, it's a little balmy, you know, it's, it's not too cold. You don't need to heat up the whole house. But tonight, when the sun goes down, it's going to get chilly. I turn on my Gen 40 I turn on, what am I going to watch tonight? I got to finish the Barbie movie. I wasn't crazy about it. I'll turn on something good though. Maybe Jeopardy. And I'll turn on my Gen 40 heater. It gets nice and toasty. I have a fireplace, Jared, but I won't lie to you. Some nights it's easier just to turn on the Gen 40. And it's that same kind of heat. It's the infrared, the convective heat. It really warms you to the bone. Yeah, and that's what you're looking for. You don't want to you know, get blasted in the face uh, like you're standing in front of a jet engine or something like that. And... The Eden Pure heaters are great for that because they use the convective heat and it it warms the room. It doesn't blast you out, like I said. And if you want to save money, which is what I like to do, I'm sure a lot of people like to do. Um, but <laughs> Universal I, feeling, I you, think. Yeah. You want to supplement your home heating. You don't want to be heating up rooms you're not in. This past week, I, past weekend, most of this week I was sick, so I've been sleeping in a different room. And it's great for me. I didn't have to turn on the oil heat to that room. I just brought the Gen 40 up there, turned it on, and it kept me warm. Um, without having to heat the entire second floor. Yeah, and if you go to EdenPureDeals.com and use code GRACE50, you're also going to save $50 off, and you're going to get free shipping on the Gen 40 heater. It's a really slick, stylish, cool device, and you guys can check it out at the website. Go to EdenPureDeals.com, look at it, look how cool it looks and how you know it's going to fit with any decor you have, and then you can buy it, but don't forget to use code GRACE50 to get that $50 off. So go to EdenPureDeals.com, use code GRACE50 for the Gen 40 heater, I see everybody on the lines. I appreciate you on the lines. We'll go back to your calls when we come back. You're listening to The Grace Curley Show. This is The Grace Curley Show. The due process is a loophole crew at CNN is back at it today, breaking down 
the latest out of Maine. We'll play some of those sound cuts when we come back. But I want to talk to the callers here. Uh, Ed is calling us. What's going on, Ed? Fill us in. Are you? Hello. Yeah, what's going on? Yes, I'm, yeah, I'm here. Uh, the, um, uh, the Maine Attorney General is uh, appointed by uh, the Maine legislature in joint session in a secret vote. I don't know if Maine people, Maine voters know about that. I mean, this this lady. I mean, I'm sure they did it in the in the uh, on Friday at about eight o'clock at night, so that everybody's sleeping, and nobody knows about it. You mean the Secretary of State? No, the Attorney General. What? Uh, oh, okay, okay. I, I follow what you're saying. Miss Fry. Oh yes. Ms. Okay. Fry. Yes. yes. So um, yeah, she she came from a legal uh, private practice, and then she suddenly became this. So. Uh, I think uh, maybe the main Mainers, main voters ought to maybe change that a little bit and make maybe put her up, maybe put the attorney general on the ballot. Yeah, I have here Attorney General Aaron M. Frey, um, born in Bangor, lived with his family in Bangor until third grade. I'm just going through a little bit of he's Maine's chief law enforcement officer, reading just a little bit about his background here. Also a member of the Baxter Park Authority. Um yeah, I don't know. I think that we got to hear from main callers about this and how they're uh, what they're thinking. If they're, you know, the the crazy part is, and this kind of to that last caller's point about this, you could say, yeah, and this is the vibe I'm getting from Shenna Bellows. Is she keeps saying, well, it's going to be overturned, essentially, like, oh, don't worry, but it's going to be overturned, and just because it's going to be overturned doesn't mean you should do it. Just because there's some safeguard in place to make sure you can't destroy democracy doesn't mean you should try. And Ben Weingarten, who we had on earlier, he said the Supreme Court can strike down utterly uh, abominable rulings, but it can't change a system that produces hordes of lawfare tin pot tyrants who argue for and make said rulings. Because we all keep going, well, it's not going to hold up when it gets to the Supreme Court or in the case of Maine, when it gets to a superior court, because this wasn't decided in a court at all. It was decided by the secretary of state. So, yeah, it's it's not going to pass the smell test if it gets to that point. But why are there people who are even trying this in the first place? Why is there a secretary of state who is relying on the January 6th report? to decide that a former president incited an insurrection, even though he hasn't been charged, he hasn't been convicted, and yet now she's going to keep him off the ballot. Like, that's a little bit, it's a little bit disturbing. Aaron Chaborn just texted me, it's pronounced fry like French fry. Maine is the only state where Secretary of State and AG are chosen by the legislature, so they pick former or current legislators. Thank you, Aaron Chadborn. This whole episode is brought to you by Aaron Chadbourne, by the way. Um, We'll be right back. We'll take more of your calls on this, and we'll talk to more people from Maine. Don't go anywhere.